We're going to do something a little differently this morning, and, and, and let me tell you why. Um, we're going to be, in First and, Th- First and Second Thessalonians, we're going to be uh, uh, addressing some passages that, quite frankly, historically have been very complex, very difficult, and, and, and I guess I could say uh, somewhat controversial uh, in, in terms of what they teach. And so I thought it was a good, I thought it was a good point in time before we get into that to, to, to remind ourselves or to review how we are to approach Scripture. How do we interpret the Bible? If, if I were to sit down with each one of you individually and sit, and I were to ask you, how do you interpret the Bible? You don't have to say anything. Uh, what would you say? How would you respond to that? How do you approach Bible interpretation? Maybe you just say, well, Jim, I just read it. I just read it and believe what it says. I, I, I wish it were that simple. I really do. But the reality of it is that God has revealed himself and his truth to us in what we call the Bible. It's a collection of 66 books. And within these 66 books, it is a compilation of literature. The Bible is literature. Now, I took a class in college at University of New Mexico. The Bible is literature, believe it or not. And you can imagine that the professor was far from conservative or orthodox. And he taught all the, about the myths that were in the Bible. Uh, and by the end of the class, you know, I raised my hand so much, everybody's eyes were going, oh, here we go again, here we go again. Uh, but the, it's, it's really true. The Bible is in God's inspired word, but God inspired it through the means of literature. And, and literature is interpreted differently depending upon what kind of literature it is. So, um, because we're going to be faced with some complex and, and maybe we could say controversial passages over the next couple of weeks, I thought it was important for us to, um, to, to, to remind ourselves of, of some key hermeneutical principles of how we apply Scripture. Otherwise, it's just, well, here's what I think it says. And then it says, well, here's what I think it says. That since really the Protestant Reformation, there have been, um, oh, quite frankly, these are principles that would apply to any type of liter- any type of interpretation of literature. By the way, I challenge you to to interpret um, your IRS documents symbolically. <laughs> so when the IRS comes knocking your door, so I didn't take you literally; I took you symbolically. We don't read it that way. But there is a great deal of symbolism in the Bible. And some people approach the Bible very literally. And they think that symbolism means that, well, you, you, you don't take the Bible seriously. So we're going to address those, those issues. Um, th- these are objective principles that we all need to apply when we approach the Scriptures. And it's amazing to me how some preachers, teachers... In one genre of literature, approach the Bible very objectively with, with very solid hermeneutical principles. Yet in other genre, genres of literature in the Bible, they, they just discard all of that. And so these are things that regardless of 
the genre of literature in the Bible, these are things that we need to do to make sure that we are interpreting the Bible accurately, or as accurately as we can. And let me just say one more thing. Our goal, think, think of um, you know, a, a target, and you have a bullseye. Our goal, God has communicated to us through His Word, and that's the bullseye. And in our interpretation, we're trying to get as close to that bullseye as we can. And there are certain things that, um, barriers that prevent us or, or make it a challenge for us to get close to that bullseye. And I came up with three. The first one is unexamined assumptions. Unexamined assumptions. We have certain assumptions about what the Bible teaches, but we've never really examined it ourselves. For instance, here is one major unexamined assumption. That what was it that Eve ate in the garden? How many of you? What? Most people say what? Apple. That's just an assumption. Does the Bible say she ate an apple? No. She did. It doesn't. That's an unexamined assumption. We have certain assumptions about the Bible that, however, however they came about, this is something that I've always thought was true. But it really isn't. This is a barrier that we have to be aware of and that we have to um, guard against in order to get as close to that bullseye as we can. Is We have certain unexamined assumptions about the Bible, about what the Bible teaches. What did Mary ride uh, 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 to Bethlehem? Everybody says, donkey. What, is it, what does the Bible say? It doesn't. It doesn't. Now, is that a, are, are you a heretic if you, if you believe she rode on a donkey? No. I'm just saying that's an assumption we have, but the Bible really doesn't teach that. So you get the point. These, we can't just live our lives as Christians when we have a Bible in our hand with unexamined assumptions that the Bible really doesn't teach. So that's the first barrier that we have to overcome when we approach Bible interpretation is, is we've got, to, we've got to stop and say, is this, have I really checked this out or is this just an assumption that I've made? The second is untested traditions. Whereas an unexamined, uh, uh, an unexamined assumption is just something I've always believed, an untested tradition is something that, I've always been, that I was always taught, but I really never checked out for myself. It is something that I read or I was taught back way back when. Um, and, and, and it's something I've always believed, that, that I've always heard, and it was, I was always taught that. But again, I've never really examined it myself. What I have been taught or told is true, but never really verified or tested. So, we have what? Unexamined? Assumptions, untested traditions. Uh, I, have, I, I grew up in a particular religious tradition. And in that tradition, here are the things that we believed. A, B, C, D. Why did we believe them? Because that was part of our religious tradition. I grew up a Southern Baptist. There are certain things a Southern Baptist you believe. Whether you really examine it or not, this is, what, this is part of your tradition. And, and it, it, it always... Later in life, it always kind of struck me as hypocritical when we would, we would blame the Roman Catholics for all their tradition 
when I see just as much tradition in evangelical churches, theological traditions that people hold that, have never, that are unexamined, untested. Number three, maybe, well, I don't know if it's more common with us or not, unwarranted identification. Unwarranted identification. The Bible was not written to you. Not about you. It wasn't written to you. Particularly in the New Testament. New Testament, most of the letters were what we called, the, the epistles were called occasional letters. They were written to a specific group of Christians at a specific place for specific purposes. Now, it was written for us. It was written for all of mankind of all time, but it wasn't written to all of all, all mankind to all time. It was written... The, who was the book of 1 Corinthians written to? The church in Corinth. Not you. Not Crossroads. But who was it written for? Us. That's a, you may think, well, that's a distinction without a difference. It's a huge difference. A huge difference. Um, here's a common, and, and I see this for the most part, uh, not for the most part, but so often, with, one, with the, prep, the plural preposition you. When we read our Bibles and we see when God is talking to a particular ch- church, in fact, well, let, let's, look, let's look at an example, a classic, Revelation 3.10. Let's turn to Revelation 3.10. This is a classic example. Here's my point. You does not always mean you. You, most of the time, means them. Now, it applies to me, but it was written and is talking about them. First, uh, this is the letter he wrote to the church in Philadelphia. Because you have kept my command to endure. Who is the you there? Is it you? Is he writing to you? No, he's talking to the church in Philadelphia. Because you have kept my command to endure, I will keep you. Who's the you? Them. He will keep them from the hour of testing that is going to come over the whole world. And we're going to look at word study here in a minute too. What does the word world mean there? To test those who live on the earth. I am coming soon. He is talking to the church in Philadelphia. He's not talking to you. He's talking for us. There's an application for us. But chapter chapter 3, verse 10, he's made a promise to the church of Philadelphia. Indirectly through application, maybe to us, but that's, that's application, that's not interpretation. And what happens is we as evangelicals, we made unwarranted identification because we mash together interpretation and application. Uh, there, there's, a, there's a guy named Chris Roseberry. He's a Luther pastor up in North Dakota, and he has a, a website or a podcast called Fighting for the Faith. I recommend it. Now, he's, again, he's Lutheran, so we have to overlook a lot of that. <laughs> Just teasing, guys. Uh, Fighting for the Faith, and he talks about, he, he, he's coined this term, narcissus. See, we have, we have eisegesis, which means you read into the text, meaning. Exegesis means you read out of the text, meaning, which is what we want to do. He calls it narcissus, reading yourself into every text. In other words, we read the Bible, I'm in every text of the Bible. Jesus is talking about me in every, in every text. Do you understand that David and Goliath, you're not David? <laughs> okay, let's just get that clear. You're not David. In fact... I'm probably the guy 
hiding behind the, the, the rest of the, you know. So we, we have to make sure that we don't read ourselves into every text. That there was a specific occasion that the author was writing to that group of people about. That's our interpretation. Then, then and only then do we do application. So, those are, I guess, three pitfalls, three uh, barriers that we need to avoid to help us get close to that bullseye. What is God, in any particular text, what has God said? What does He mean by what He said? Now, those just uh, getting rid of or overcoming those barriers don't get you all the way home. The old saying is, they get, your, they get you to third base, but they don't get you to home. What gets us to home? Well, that's what I want to look at, some hermeneutical principles to apply. Those, those are the three things we want to avoid or overcome. Now, what do we need to do? What do we need to, how do we need to approach this thing called Bible interpretation or, or what we call hermeneutics, the art and science, because there's both, of biblical interpretation? Our starting point is, number one, sola scriptura. Anybody know what sola scriptura is? means? Scripture alone. And in saying that, what, what are we saying when we... By the way, that was a, a, a prominent pillar of the Protestant Reformation. And it remains, it remains the, the primary difference between us and Roman Catholicism is our source of authority. Rome says sola ecclesia. The church is the authority. We say no, not yet. Sola scriptura. The Scriptures are our final and ultimate authority. What do we mean by that? What's that? Yeah, we don't need any additional revelation from God. There is no additional revelation that is authoritative, that is binding on our conscience other than Scriptures. Not the Book of Mormon, not the Upanishads, not the, uh, 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 well, what is it? The, the, the magisterium, the teaching magisterium of the church. There is no creed, there is no book, there is no other source of authority. The scriptures alone are our authority. And every single one of us in here, every single one of us here, almost, would affirm that. We have no problem with that. And yet it seems to me that when we come, when it comes to Bible interpretation, we deny it in so many ways. Let me ask you a fundamental question. Do you believe that you can understand and interpret the Bible apart from anyone or anything else? Don't, don't say it out loud. I'd be curious to know how you respond to that. Is this all I need to understand what God has said to me? There are many Christians who say no. No. I can't understand this by myself. I need external authorities. I need the church fathers. So many people appeal to the quotes of the church fathers. Well, let's see what the church fathers had to say about this. Some people appeal to commentaries. Say, well, I'm going I'm to go read a commentary. My question is, can you understand, by and large, can you understand God's Word without reading a commentary? Yes. Now, am I opposed to commentaries? No, I consult them all the time. And we're going to talk in a minute about how, how, do we, how are we to use external authorities. But here's the problem. Most people, well, let me ask you this. What about study Bibles? 
the study Bible notes. I'm an advocate of study Bibles. Don't get me wrong. I believe every single one of us should have a study Bible. A good study Bible. But those study notes, for those of you that use study Bibles, when was the last time you read that note and you went, I disagree with that. I don't think that's what the text is saying. If every single time you just read the study notes and believe what they say, say whole stock and barrel, is that how the phrase goes? Lock, stock, and barrel. See, that was an assumption I had that that's what the saying meant. It's, Sola Scriptura is not just saying that we have no need for any other additional revelation. It means that we have really no need for any, no need for any external authorities. Because when we seek an external authority to validate my interpretation, now what is our ultimate authority? The external. Consult commentaries. Use your study Bibles. Look up church fathers. But understand, church fathers' quotes were not inspired. We, 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 we can't, and it's, it's amazing to me, I, I, hear, I hear debates all the time, I listen to debates on podcasts all the time, and evangelical debaters constantly are quoting church fathers to try to prove their point. And I think that's the absolute wrong-headed way to go. Because what are we saying? We're saying we need quotes from the church father, fathers to validate Scripture. Or History. I can't tell you how many times someone will read something in the Bible and say, well, that never happened in history. There's no account in history of that ever happening. And what have we just done? We've made history the ultimate authority or the recording of history the ultimate authority that is now determining my interpretation of the Bible. What if you read something? What if you read in historical account? What if Tacitus... Roman historian Tacitus had written that Jesus Christ never lived. So, well, if there's no if there's no historical validation, I guess it, I guess it didn't happen. Guys, we, we we cannot rely on history to determine our interpretation of Scripture to say, well, I don't know, I don't, I don't, there's nothing that ever recorded that that ever happened. That's irrelevant. What does the text say? My reason is an external authority. There are some parts of the Bible that just seem unreasonable to me. And therefore, my inclination is to say, well, that can't be true then, because it doesn't make sense to my reason. So I'm going to alter my interpretation because it seems unreasonable to me. Well, I'm, I'm, the resurrection is not reasonable. We have to be careful... In, in our use, and there is a proper use of external authority, of history, of church fathers, of our reason. There is a valid use for those things, but we have to be very, very careful that those things do not determine our interpretation, but they simply reinforce our interpretation. And where they differ, we must side with the text. Internal authority, the internal evidence, is primary always primary, over anything external. And if all the evidence outside the Bible said this text is a lie, we stand with the text. That's what it means to believe in Sola Scriptura. It is 
primary. The text is primary and determinative. And I think we've been sold a bill of goods to think that I cannot understand the Bible apart from or interpret the Bible accurately apart from external sources. Now, God has granted the church and given the church godly men uh, with godly insight. The spiritual gift, I think, and written great commentaries and great insight and, and understanding of the Scriptures, and we need to take advantage of that. We, we have to interpret in community. I'm not, I'm not arguing against that. I, I consult them all the time. But they don't determine my interpretation. They don't drive my interpretation. Certainly not history. Certainly not quotes. Certainly not my own reason. That's what sola scriptura means. Number two, genre. The first question you ask yourself, sola scriptura really is the foundation for everything else. The first question you ask yourself when you're going to interpret the Bible is, what genre of literature is this? Turn, turn, you're, you're in Revelation. Turn to Revelation 13. So you're, you're, you're reading in your morning devotional. Well, hello, guys. How exciting. John and Samantha. See, I've got to start preaching now. It's John and Samantha Ogas. Uh, you guys visiting or you moved back? You're back. Okay, well, we need to talk because my daughter just moved to Orlando. Good to see you. Revelation 13. So, so you're, you're morning devotional and you're reading Revelation 13. And I saw a beast coming out of the sea and he had ten horns and seven heads. And on his horns were ten diadems and on his heads were blasphemous names. The beast I saw was like a leopard. His feet were like a bear's and his mouth was like a lion's mouth. The dragon gave him his power, his throne, and great authority. One of his heads appeared to be fatally wounded, but his fatal wound was healed. The whole earth was amazed and followed the beast. And if I said to you, what does that mean? Is, he, is John literally talking about a literal ten-headed beast coming up out of a body, a large body of water? How do we know he's not? How do we make that determination that he's not? Okay. Because of the genre of literature. This is apocalyptic literature. If you read poetry, would you interpret poetry? For instance, when Psalm was it 90 says, God will, I will hide you under the feathers of my wings. Does God have wings? On what basis can we tell the Mormon, no, God does not have feathers and God does not have wings. The genre of literature, it's poetry. If you read Ralph Waldo Emerson, you're going to ter- interpret that differently than, I don't know, your history book. You, you see, guys... The Bible is literature, and it's filled with different kinds of literature, and it really determines and drives how we interpret our Scripture. Otherwise, God, all the anthropomorphic, or, or, and, and there, do you know if there's a fear called zoomorphic? Heard of that? Zoomorphic? Zoomorphic is when you draw comparisons using animals, parts of animals. You, Joanne, you want to write that down? That's free. Um, zoomorphic. How do we know that God doesn't have feathers and wings? How do we know that God does not have eyeballs and literally sees with his eyes and has you know, nerves that go to a... You see, genre of literature. What do we find in the Bible? We find poetry. We saw, for instance, Job and Psalms. 
Very figurative. Poetry is very figurative. Metaphors and similes. Comparisons. We have prophecy. Where do we find prophecy in the Bible? Prophets. <laughs> Thanks, Mike. Yeah, the prophets. Good answer. The prophets. What's prophecy like? What's that genre of literature like? What is prophecy like? Did, did, did the prophets say, you know, sometime in the future, in 2,000 years, there's going to be a, a, a country by the name of Rome, and, 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 and Rome is going to occupy, you don't really know it yet, but it's going to occupy this place called Israel and, and, uh, and Palestine. And, and then Jesus, his name is Jesus. Jesus is going to come. And he's going to, did they, do they phrase it that way? No. Why not? Because it's prophetic. They're using metaphors and similes. We see poetry. We see prophets, prophecy. We see apocalyptic literature. What is apocalyptic? When you think of... By the way, examples would be Ezekiel and Revelation. Ezekiel would be an Old Testament example of apocalyptic literature, and, and Revelation would be a, a, a New Testament example. What's apocalyptic literature? Well, it's typically used that way, but in terms of the, what, what's the nature of it? What's that? There's, there's some prediction, and, but there's also some description. See, you need to know what apocalyptic means because otherwise you won't interpret it probably accurately. Apocalyptic is highly symbolic and figurative. It would be like prophecy on steroids. It, it is, it is um, beyond, uh, it, it is beyond, it, it is so obviously beyond reality that, that it's, it, it would be hard to ever take Literally, in that sense. So, Ezekiel, in Ezekiel 37, when he said, I had this vision of these dry bones. Or, or better yet, Ezekiel 1, when he describes the, 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 the angel in a big circle with ten wings and two heads, and in and, and any direction it went, the wheels turned. and This, this outlandish, uh, symbolic, figurative language. We have narrative. What's narrative? Story. Just story. And then this happened and this happened and so-and-so went here. and was It's story. Examples of narrative. Old Testament. Yeah. Well, the Gospels are even really a genre unto themselves. But they, they, the Gospels have some narrative in it, for sure. Acts is a narrative. The Old Testament, 1st, 2nd Samuel narrative. They're just telling a story. God revealed um, truth through plot, through characters, not made up, but through the author, through the, the events of this story, revealed truth to us. Um, didactic, from the Greek word didasko, which means to teach. These are just normal teaching portions of the Bible. This would be our New Testament epistles. Paul's epistles, for instance, Paul's letters. These are just linear teaching we interpret those very differently than Ezekiel. We have wisdom literature. Anybody know what wisdom literature is? Proverbs. Well, these are examples. Proverbs. Uh, in, in fact, there's a New Testament uh, book that is considered New Testament wisdom literature. It's James. Wisdom literature is generalized truths that are taught without 
without exception or without qualification. Proverbs is a good example. For instance, we have Proverbs that are stated, generalized truths that are stated without qualification or exception. Look before you leap. Is that a truism? It is unless an RTD bus is bearing down on you. Then I advise you leap regardless of where you're looking. These are generalized truths stated without qualifications or exceptions. And, and, and we interpret Proverbs very differently than we do Romans. So, again, when I, if I were to ask you, how do you approach Scripture? How do you interpret Scripture? The first thing you should say is, well, it depends on what kind of genre it is. It depends on what I'm reading. If I'm reading Romans, I will interpret it one particular way. If I'm reading Ezekiel, I'll approach it in a very different way. So all of Scripture is different in different genres. Number three is analogy of faith. And this gets back to what, what Neil said. Analogy of faith it simply means that Scripture interprets Scripture. It does not contradict itself. And if you find a contradiction, you're wrong. <laughs> it's operator error somehow. Don't think that you have found something that has escaped the entire Western church for 2,000 years. Or, better yet, that has escaped the skeptics of the Christian faith for 2,000 years. If you think you found a contradiction that escaped Bertrand Russell, you're probably mistaken. Okay? Analogy of faith means Scripture interprets Scripture. This means also that you interpret the less clear in light of the more clear. And we're going to find this in 2 Thessalonians. So turn to 2 Thessalonians. We'll give you a little preview. We'll get your hackles up. <clears throat> Second Thessalonians. <clears throat> Chapter 2. Now, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to Him, we ask you, brothers, not to be easily upset in mind or troubled, either by a spirit or by a message or by a letter as if from us, alleging that the day of the Lord has come. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. He opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, so that he sits in God's temple proclaiming that he himself is God. Don't you remember that when I was with you, I told you about this? And you know what currently restrains him, so that he will be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work, but, now, but the one now restraining will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed. The Lord Jesus will destroy him with the breath of his mouth and will bring him to nothing with the brightness of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is based on Satan's working with all kinds of false miracles, signs, and wonders, and with every unrighteous deception among those who are perishing. They perish because they did not accept the love of the truth in order to be saved. For this reason, God sends them a strong delusion so that they will believe what is false and so that they will all be condemned. Those who did not believe the truth, those who did not believe the truth but enjoyed unrighteousness. Who's the man of lawlessness? Oh. 
the reformers would have agreed with you. Who's the man of lawlessness? The right answer at this point, we just read it. What's your answer? I have no clue. <clears throat> but we look at verse 6. What does verse 6 say? You can read it. And tell me, what does it say? Is it clear or unclear? Is it clear or unclear? How is it clear? What's clear? He's, he's being restrained right now. That's clear. Don't know who it is, but in, he was being restrained when Paul wrote this letter. What was one of the, what's one of the things that he, he did or would do? He, this is a, he is predicting back then, it, it's already happened because it was restrained. In. What is one of the things that's clear that he's going to do? Set himself up in God's temple, proclaim himself to be God. And you say, well, history, no one, that's, we don't know if that ever occurred. So it's got to be in our future. Because that's unclear. That never, hurt, that never occurred historically. We interpret that, though, in light of what's clear. What's clear is that whoever it was was being restrained then. Now, I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you my answer ahead of time. I have no clue who the man of lawlessness is. The Thessalonians did. I don't think we do. And I'm going to challenge you, because many of you are in your mind, you're saying, what's the Antichrist? We'll see. Always interpret the less clear in light of the more clear. In other words, if I have to reconcile something, I'm going to, I'm going to reconcile that which is less clear to me in a passage with that that is more clear. Maybe not be, it may not be crystal clear, but it may be more clear. And there's a lot of examples we could use. Analogy of faith is, is simply that Scripture interprets Scripture that my interpretation cannot contradict what the, what the Scripture teaches elsewhere, and I must interpret. It makes sense, doesn't it? It makes sense that I interpret that which is less clear and, and, and align it and reconcile it with what is more clear. Or I simply leave it as I don't know. Okay, we'll talk about more of that when we get to Second Thessalonians. Okay, number four. Is it number four? Boy, I need to... Original relevance. I didn't, I didn't know how else to say this. We already talked about this in terms of the barrier. Pronouns especially. You is not you. Time indicators. We see time indicators throughout Scripture that are very clear. Um, and we don't have time to get into those right now. But we, we need to look and remember that the text was written to someone else first in a particular time, for a particular reason, in particular purpose. Now, I will say this. With didactic teaching, there's less of that. Because Paul oftentimes speaks broadly and universally, and so there's less of a distance between interpretation and application. Other times, though, we have to be careful that we don't conflate application with interpretation. Number three, or five, six, whatever. Context. Context. We, we look at the immediate context. The immediate context would be paragraphs or chapters. Uh, the, 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 the authors did not re- record these truths with um, just randomly. 
a free association. There's trains of thought. There, there's lines of thought. Now, sometimes Paul is difficult because he'll start one train of thought. He'll say a word or he'll say something that gets him thinking about something else. So he goes way over here, blah, 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 and then only eventually comes way back over here. But you can trace it. You can trace that line of thought. Context. Chapter context. Our, our chapters. We, what's the context of this chapter? The Testament or the book. We actually, we probably start, what's the context of the book? Then of the Testament, the context of the New Testament, and then context of the whole Bible. And then I would add one, a theological context. The Bible has a theological context. What's one main theological context of the entire Scriptures? What would you say? What would be a broad theological concept that, that, that really kind of would, would, would guide all of the Bible? What's that? Yeah, the plan of salvation, something along, you know, redempt, God's redemptive plan in Christ. Okay, so we have broad theological themes that we see in the Bible. We interpret according to context. Lexical studies. Uh, go back to Revelation chapter 3, verse 10. You guys are being very patient. We're almost done. Not really, but... Revelation 3.10 again. Remember his, his, his letter to Philadelphia. Because you have kept my... Verse 10. Because you have kept my command to endure, I will keep you from the hour of testing that is going to come over the whole world to test those who love in the earth. So you, you say, well, the whole world. That means America and Brazil and Antarctica... Because, Jim, it says the whole world. Well, if, if you were to study the Bible, you'll read that there are different words for world. This is not cosmos, which usually has the, the, the meaning of you know, the universe, all-encompassing. This is what's called oikomene. This has more of a, of a political realm. In fact, it's the same word for world. Use, turn to Luke chapter 2, verse 1. So if you did a word study, you'd find out how is it used elsewhere? Luke chapter 2, verse 1. In those days, the decree went out, and we only read this during Christmas, so I apologize. In those days, the decree went out from Caesar Augustus that the whole world, oikomene, uh, Eric, where's Eric? Read chapter Luke chapter 2, verse 1, please, in your translation. The entire Roman world. The entire Roman Empire. This, this, and, and that's accurately depicting oikomene. It, it, it's, it's talking about a political realm. It's not talking about cosmos. I'm not talking about every single continent and every single country. And, and, we, and so our translators, they have to make a decision. Do I put world or do I put Roman Empire? Some of our newer translations put Roman Empire. Uh, for instance, I'm reading from the Holman Christian Standard. It says that the whole empire should be registered. I think that's more accurate than world. And this is the same word used in Revelation chapter 3, verse 10. So, so we do word studies. And by the way, these are not things that you have to have a seminary education to do. There are so many great tools that most, of, not most, all of you could be using if, if that was a desire of yours. 
we do word studies. Um, we, 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 the, we, we look at the same word in the same book. Then we look at how the, how the same author uses that word. Then we look at how that word is used in the same testament. Each, every word has a way we call a semantic range. We've talked about this before. What does green mean? <laughs> yeah, if, if you're AOC, what does green mean? What is green? What's the definition of green? Anybody have any idea? No one knows what green means. It's a color. Marijuana. Really? Oh, that's right. That's right. Oh. What determines what determines a word's meaning? Context. You put on a green. Green is is often used as a as a metaphor for inexperienced. And every Greek word has semantic ranges, and, and translators have to make decisions. And you can check yourself and to see whether you agree with that or not. Now, in most cases, we will, because these are really brilliant Greek you know, scholars, godly men. They're, they're, not trying to de- they're not trying to deceive you. See, if they put world in your translation, it doesn't mean it's wrong. Uh, it doesn't mean they're trying to deceive you or hide anything. It just simply means they made a particular, particular translation decision. But you know what? God doesn't. Ex- you're not going to have to answer for what Leon, Dr. Leon Morris believes about Revelation 3:10. You're going to have to answer about what you believe Revelation 3:10 says. You're not going to say, "Well, Leon Morris told me that it was." You are required to study the Bible for yourself because you can study it for yourself. You can understand it. How would I, for instance, if we went back to. 2 Thessalonians. And, uh, and it says, the day of the Lord. Where would, I, where would you go to find out what the day of the Lord means? Don't say your commentary. Where do you go when you want to find out what a word in Scripture means? You go to Scripture. Now, is there a time that we go to commentary? Absolutely. Absolutely. To see whether you agree with them or not. After your study, we 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 got to stop running elsewhere, other than the Bible. Look up what the Bible has to say about Day of the Lord, and you know what? You may come to the end and go, "I have, I still have no clue." That's fine. Go to your commentaries. I, I, please don't hear me say that we don't need commentaries. I'm just simply saying that through our own lexical study, using the Bible. In most cases, we can determine what the Bible means by these different words. Okay. Uh, Syntactical, grammar, verb tense, all these kind of things. Here's a rule of thumb that's going to be very important for us, especially in 1 Thessalonians. And this is where I see a lot of pastors and teachers get themselves, I think, in trouble. Particularly as it it relates to end time things or things that are supposedly about end times. And this is a rule of thumb that 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 I think is crucial and, and they don't follow it. And I think to their own uh, harm is too strong of a word. Well, let me just say it. If after all of your study, you cannot, with a reasonable degree of exegetical certainty, determine what something means, then what is your conclusion? I don't know what it means. 
and I'll give you, I'll give you a, a preview. I don't think anybody can say with, with any kind of certainty who the man of lawlessness was. We can speculate. Some say Nero. Some say it was uh, some kind of a, a Jewish leader in, in the synagogue or in the temple. And then how they get to Antichrist, I have no idea. They say it was the Antichrist. Show me that exegetically. So I'm just saying, if we do all of our homework and we study the Bible and we compare it and we interpret it and we cannot determine with with any kind of textual or exegetical certainty who the man of lawlessness is, then then, then what we should say in all honesty is what? I'm not sure. I'm not sure. But you don't sell commentaries that way. You don't sell books that way. How many of you want to buy a book on 2 Thessalonians where the guy goes, you know, at the end of the day, I really don't know who this guy was. We want him to tell us. So as we approach these... This is, by the way, this is not just for Thessalonians. Any aspect of Scripture, we have to keep all of these pitfalls in mind to avoid, these principles to apply... So that we approach Scripture and we, all our goal is to try to get as close to that bullseye as we possibly can. Given our finiteness, our fallibleness, our, our, all of our traditions, all the things we have to overcome. Cultural difference. I mean, these are dealing with thousands of years ago. All the barriers and things we have to overcome. We need to approach it with, with objective, consistent, hermeneutical principles. Not interpret it... Interpret the Bible one way, this way, in other words, that way, but with consistent principles, genre, with the, the, the context, the, the, the sola scriptura. Scripture interprets the Scripture. I'm here to tell you guys, you can interpret the Scripture for yourself without external authorities. Now, there may be some places that you don't understand and it's difficult for you to, to grasp and understand, so by means, consult, consult those things. But by and large, the Bible was written in in a way that you can and should be interpreting it for yourself given these principles. And I will challenge us over and over and over again to do just that. Stop relying only on commentators or on study Bibles or on your favorite book or your favorite pastor or your favorite author. Those are helpful, but they're not determinative. The text is determinative. We got it? All right. Let's pray.